0: All right, now let's turn to John chapter 2. We're working our way through the Gospel of John, and we're in John chapter 2. You know, you hear politicians talking about taking on big pharma, the pharmaceutical industry, or taking on big tech, the technological industry. Well, here in John chapter 2, Jesus is going to take on big worship. (laughs) Uh, You've heard of the military-industrial complex. Well, he's going to take on the worship-industrial complex of first-century Jerusalem. In John chapter 2, verse 13, The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And He found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. And He made a scourge of cords, a whip of cords, and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, He said... "'Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business.' His disciples remembered that it was written, "'Zeal for your house will consume me.' The Jews then said to him, "'What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things?' Jesus answered them, "'Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up.' The Jews then said, "'It took 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days?' But he was speaking of the temple of his body." So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Well, if you have your bulletin, there is a listening guide on the back panel. Uh, I hope that you'll follow along. Let's start, first of all, just uh, laying the groundwork. Let's get a handle on the setting. And we'll understand and appreciate a whole lot better what's going on in this passage if we, if we just know some of the background. So let's start there. Let's start with the timing of it, namely Passover. And and John tells us in verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was near. Now you'll remember Passover started way back in Exodus, at the Exodus, Moses and the 10 plagues. The 10th plague was the plague of the death of the firstborn. And God gave his people a means by which they could escape the plague of the death of the firstborn. If they followed his instructions, the angel of death would pass over their home, pass over their family. And God gave them a commemorative meal for the generations, for the Jews to, to, to celebrate together and to remember what God did for Israel in Egypt. Well, that Passover meal, that Passover became a pilgrimage feast. In Deuteronomy 16... In verse 16, God said, "...three times in a year your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which He chooses, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread," and Passover would be a part of that or attached to it, "...and the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Booths, and they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed." So Jewish males over the age of 12, if at all possible, were supposed to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem three times a year, Passover being the biggest of these pilgrim festivals. One writer suggested that the population of Jerusalem would swell to over 2 million people at Passover. It was huge. Now, in the Gospel of John, as John kind of lays out the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ, he he mentions three different Passovers. We have a Passover here in John 2, and then it's Passover again in John 6, and then it's Passover again in John chapter 11. And so these Passovers really kind of mark out the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. There's another issue of timing we need to just kind of put out there. Here in the Gospel of John, Jesus cleanses the temple, driving the money changers and the merchants out of the temple, cleanses the temple. In the Gospel of John, this is happening early on in the ministry of Christ. These are early days. Things are just getting started. In the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus cleanses the temple. But in the Synoptic Gospels, it's at the end of his earthly ministry. It's during Passion Week. In fact, it really is the straw that breaks the camel's back. The Jewish leaders are already out to get Jesus, but after, after cleansing the temple, it's on. And they really start planning to kill him. So you have in John, it's at the beginning of the Lord's ministry, and the others, it's at the end of his ministry. Well, which is right? What do you do with that? Well, there are three, three approaches, three answers to that. One suggestion is, well, somebody got it wrong. <laughs> so either John's wrong, or the other three guys are wrong, but somebody's just wrong. Well, If you have a high view of Scripture, that's not a satisfactory answer. Another approach is to say, well, John is just exercising some editorial license as a gospel writer. And we've already seen that gospel is a literary genre. And and none of the gospel writers sat down to write down a, a historical chronology of the Lord's ministry. Well, on August the 3rd, Jesus went to this town, and on August the 4th, he did this miracle, and on August the 5th, he had this conversation. That's, none of the gospel writers are trying to do that. A gospel is a genre, and the point of the gospel is a message. So each of the gospel writers is conveying a message to a specific target audience. And so they select material and they edit material and they arrange material to convey a message. To an audience. And the message is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ. And so being gospel writers, well perhaps John is taking something that happened at the end of Jesus' ministry and he's bringing it to the beginning of Jesus' ministry to make a theological point. Well that would be fair enough. But, uh, and there are a number of scholars who, who, who think that. But John has really been pretty tight so far with, with signals of time. We've heard three times, the next day, the next day, the next day. Now it's Passover. And John tells us where Jesus is. Well, he was at Cana. He went to Capernaum. Now he's in Jerusalem. And so John is really pretty careful about that that time and place. Not trying to lay out a chronology, but he's not careless with it either. So that's that's one idea, that, that John is exercising a little bit of liberty here as a gospel writer. Another approach is to say there's two cleansings. That this event happened twice and that it happened at the beginning of Jesus' ministry and that it happened again two or three years later at the end of his ministry. And so John and Matthew, Mark, and Luke are describing two different events. They're similar, but they are different. The dialogue is different. The outcome is different. And so more conservative scholars would suggest, no, there's two cleansings. And that's kind of where I hang my hat. But you pay your money, take your choice, but that's out there. So there's the timing. Now let's look at the place. And the place is the temple. Here's here's the temple. And in the temple, you see Jesus went up to Jerusalem. He found in the temple, the temple area, those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and money changers were seated at their tables. For Jews coming to worship God in the temple in Jerusalem under the old covenant, they had to bring qualified sacrifices and qualified offerings. Animal sacrifices had to be without spot, without blemish, without defect. They, they had to be pristine. To offer this to the Lord, it has to be fit for worship, acceptable to the Lord. And, and what, many, what many worshipers would do then, just as a, as a pragmatic step, they would buy the animals that they're going to offer to the Lord as animal sacrifices, they would buy them in Jerusalem. They would buy those sacrifices in Jerusalem. And that makes sense. It's, it's convenient, but it's also practical especially if you're traveling a great distance. So let's say you're traveling, you're going to be hiking 30, 40, 50, 60 miles. You don't want to be leading an ox for 50, 60 miles or sheep or carrying birds for that far because anything can happen on the trip. And by the time you get to Jerusalem, your animals no longer fit for sacrifice. It's been injured or something has happened along the way. So it's a practical matter. When we get to Jerusalem, we'll buy this and such an animal to offer as a gift, as a a sacrifice to the Lord. And by the way, the principle there is you give God your first and your best. An animal without spot or blemish or defect. You give God your first, your best. You don't give God leftovers. You don't give God what you didn't need or what you won't miss. You give God first. You give God best. Now, the Jewish men had to pay a temple tax on this trip. And Jewish men, 20 and up, owed a half shekel per man per year temple tax. But when you paid that temple tax or gave a monetary offering to God through the temple, you had to give it in qualified currency. You couldn't use Roman money. You couldn't use foreign money. You had to give it in a temple shekel, the form of a temple shekel, or you could use Tyrian coinage because it was such pure metal and such accurate weight. So you could either use Tyrian coinage or you could use a temple shekel. But if you came in there with a pocket full of Roman money or foreign money, well, you have to exchange currency. Now, do you see a business opportunity here? (laughs) If you're you're business-minded, you've got millions of people who are going to converge on Jerusalem two or three times a year. They're going to be wanting to buy good animals for animal sacrifices, and they're going to be wanting to exchange currencies. So, I mean, there's a business opportunity. And a whole cottage industry basically grew up around the worship of the Lord. You can also see the potential for corruption. One of the things the priest would do when you bring your animal as a sacrifice to the Lord, the priest is going to inspect that animal and make sure it is without spot, without blemish, without defect. Is this acceptable for worship? What if you have a corrupt priest? If you have a corrupt priest, your animal's never going to pass muster, he can always find something wrong. And his verdict will be, I'm sorry, this is unacceptable. You're going to have to go buy something from my cousin (laughs) Vinny over there across the way. And so the priests got into it. Now you have a closed system. It's a a monopoly. It's a complex. And the priests got into this whole money-making scheme. The money changers would charge exorbitant exchange rates. So, I mean, you'd lose your shirt trying to change your foreign money into money that could be accepted at the temple. So they they would charge interest rates or an exchange rate. Above and beyond. At one point, these merchants and money changers were not in the temple. They were across the valley from the temple, across the Kidron Valley on the Mount of Olives. But somewhere along the way, either Annas or Caiaphas, the high priest, said it was okay to bring all that under the roof. Let's just bring the ever the businessman, let's make it convenient for our customers, and we bring that here. And so the priests got in the biz. And the result is is that the very men who are supposed to be leading God's people to know God, love God and worship God, they've just turned the worship of God into a cash cow. This is big worship. It is the worship industrial complex. Now, let me talk about the court of Gentiles for just a moment. These merchants, these money changers, they have set up shop in the court of Gentiles. The temple complex was separated into successive courtyards, these spaces. The outermost courtyard was the court of Gentiles. So if you were a non-Jew, a Gentile, and you wanted to worship the God of Israel, pray to the God of Israel, uh, uh, contemplate the God of Israel then you could come to the temple of God in Jerusalem and you could come into the court of Gentiles. Now, you can't go any further than that as a Gentile. That's a capital crime. You could be put to death for that. In fact, that will be the false charge trumped up against Paul later on. They accused him of bringing a Gentile into the temple. But a Gentile could come into the court of Gentiles. Beyond the court of Gentiles was the court of women. Jewish women could go into the temple to worship God as far as the court of women. Jewish men could go into the court of Israel. That's where Jewish men would go and worship the God of Israel. Beyond the court of Israel was the court of priests. Only priests could go into the court of priests. So you get the idea. You have these graduated uh, courtyards. The court of Gentiles is where all this place, all this has been set up, this, this money changing and selling the animals. And in fact, listen to what Jesus says in verse, in verse 16. He says, Stop making my father's house... A place of business is the Greek word emporion. It's where we get emporium from. You've turned the court of Gentiles. You've turned the father's house, namely the court of Gentiles, into a marketplace, into an emporium. Uh, this, it, it's, a, it's a cattle market. It's a flea market. It's a bazaar all in one place. Now, just imagine the setting. Here you've got at least oxen and sheep and doves. We, we see that. At least you've got oxen and sheep and doves. And just imagine the noise. All those animals are going to make, and the racket, and the smells. And then you have all these merchants. You have people haggling over prices. What? You want $12? That's ridiculous. You know, and so they're haggling over prices. Will you take this or that? Fussing over exchange rates or negotiating exchange rates. You can just imagine there would be some barkers out there as well get your turtle doves over here, two for a dollar, you know, come and get it. Don't you need a sheep? Come over here. I've got your sheep right here. Come here. And you can just, I mean, this is, it's an emporium. It is a bazaar. It's, it's a flea market in the house of God, in the court of Gentiles. Let's say you're a Gentile, a God fearer, and you want to go worship and pray to the God of Israel. Where are you going to go? This is the only place you're allowed So much for worshiping God in solemnity and dignity and reverence. The court of Gentiles. So that's the backdrop. Now that you understand that, now let's watch and see what happens. Now we have the setting. Look at the signs. Remember, John is writing down signs so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So here's the sign. The first sign is that Jesus causes a scene. And it says in verse 15, he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business, an emporium. Wow. Now, here's where we just have to stop and imagine. Just use your sanctified imagination. You just have to close your eyes and try to picture the scene. One man did this. Again, it's Passover. People are everywhere. This place is jam-packed. And you got the animals and you got the merchants and you got the money changers and you got the priests and all the rest. All this stuff goes on. And Jesus shows up with a handmade whip, a scourge. And he starts whipping animals and driving the oxen and the sheep out and flipping tables. And money goes on the ground. And you know what happens when money hits the ground? People hit the ground. And I mean, just, just imagine... You know, in John chapter 1, we heard, we heard John the Baptist say, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. Behold the Lamb of God. And sometimes that's kind of how we picture Jesus, this sweet little lamb. Bless his heart. Just so sweet. And, and we kind of get that image from Isaiah as well. Like a, like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its seers, he opened not his mouth. So you kind of get that idea that Jesus is this meek, harmless, lovable little lamb that would never hurt a flea. But he's also the lion of the tribe of Judah. Folks, Jesus wasn't this milk toast of a man. He was bold. He was fearless. He was loving. He was gentle. He was gracious. Children wanted to be around him. So, I mean, he's, he's a loving, kind, gracious man, but he's, he's also a man. And he's bold and he's fearless. And he doesn't back up. And here the lion of the tribe of Judah roars. One man, not Jesus and his disciple, one guy. Came in here and cleaned house. That's amazing. You know, when, when Jesus calls out the scribes and the Pharisees on their hypocrisy, they don't get the lamb, they got the lion. <laughs> I mean, woe to you scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you, you're like whitewashed sepulchres full of dead men's bones. I mean, they didn't, they didn't get the lamb, they got the lion. Let me show you something interesting. Go with me to John 18. In John chapter 18, when they come to arrest Jesus, The chief priests and the Pharisees and a Roman cohort, they come find Jesus. They have lanterns and torches and weapons. In 18.4, so Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming to him, went forth and said to them, whom do you seek? He's not hiding behind a tree somewhere. Oh, no, hope they don't see me. Jesus goes out to them. Who are you looking for? They answered to him, Jesus, the Nazarene. He said to them, I am. Now, I'm reading from the New American Standard, and they're trying to be helpful and grammatically correct. So they throw in the word he there just to make it sound better. I am he. But in the Greek, there is no he. It's ego, a me. I am. I am. Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with him. So when he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Folks, that's the line. That's the line coming out. Who are you looking for? He comes out to them. Who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. I am (laughs) And they fall back. He didn't bust a move on them. He didn't go all ninja. He just said, I am. And just the force of who he is and what he is. They fall backward. The line of the tribe of Judah. He goes in there and cleans up shop. I mean, just can you imagine? I I can't imagine. I just can't. Can you imagine his poor little disciples? Andrew, Simon, Peter, (laughs) James, and John. Can you imagine? I mean, these are early days. They, I mean... We just went from this low-key miracle. He turned water into wine, but nobody really saw it. Just the, uh, the servants and disciples. We saw that last week, this low-key miracle. that was on the down low. Now we've gone to public spectacle. Can you imagine his disciples? I, I, I can. They're probably just slack-jawed, dumbstruck, Just. Or they're going. <laughs> you know, I don't see nothing. Can, I, I mean, how do you process this? fascinating. Now, where's this coming from? Well, let me show you where this event derives, where where it's derived. One, it comes from the Lord's relationship with the father. It comes out of his relationship with the father. You're making my father's house a place of business. Gary Burge said this, Jesus is acting out of his relationship with the father as Messiah and God's son. He's driven to defend and promote God's interest in the world. When he sees the human ruin of God's house, he's overwhelmed with a desire to act. When you love someone, what's important to them becomes important to you, doesn't it? When you love God, you love what God loves and you hate what God hates. And God, the son has a perfect love for God, the father, and he loves what the father loves and he's zealous for the house of God. That's the next thing. It comes out of his relationship with the father and it comes from a zeal for the father's house. Look in verse 17, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. That's a quote from Psalm 69. David says, it: zeal for your house consumes me. Zeal for, your, zeal for the Father's house. We, we touched on this last week. You remember back when Jesus was 12 years old, his mom and dad accidentally left him behind. They had to go back and find him, and they found him in the temple. And in Luke 2:49, Jesus, a 12-year-old boy, said this, Why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my Father's house? At 12, he had a zeal for the Father's house, and here he has a zeal for the Father's house. That's where this is coming from. And then there's the authority of the Messiah. There are a lot of things that Jesus did. A lot of signs, uh, John tells us, that aren't written down. But I've written these down so that you may believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God. When Jesus says, my father, my father's house, that's Messianic talk. Jews in the Old Testament did not conceive of the God of Israel as their father. As their father in heaven. That's a New Testament teaching. Jesus revealed that. Now... They might have considered God as the father of Israel. The king would be called the son of God. The Messiah would certainly be the son of God. But the Old Testament Jew, he did not conceive of God as his father. But Jesus taught us, here's how you can pray. Our father who art in heaven, your father who's in heaven, he knows you need all these things and so forth. So this is messianic language. And out of that messianic authority, Jesus cleans house. Listen to Andreas Kostenberger. He said, again, Jesus acts the part of the Messiah. He drives out the merchants from the temple area with messianic authority because he is zealous for the worship of God. So there's the first sign. Jesus makes a scene. Here's the second sign. Jesus makes a prediction. (laughs) Jesus makes a prediction. Verse 18. The Jews, these will be the leaders there in the temple, they said to him, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. The Jews then said it took 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Now, we've already seen that the apostle John, he likes irony. He likes double meanings. And there's another kind of theme that we see in the Gospel of John. That's the theme of misunderstanding, where Jesus will say something to someone, and it just goes... Just right over there, they don't get it. They don't get it at all. They totally misunderstand. They're clueless. What What was that? We see all of that right here. Here's irony. Jesus single-handedly drove oxen and sheep and birds and merchants. (laughs) He drove all this stuff out of the court of Gentiles single-handedly. That's the sign. Then the leaders show up. Hey, we want a sign. That was just it. You you want to see it again? (laughs) You You missed the sign. No, we want a sign. And probably what they wanted was a miracle to verify he had the prophetic authority to do what he just did. Jesus said, okay, I'll give you another sign. Destroy this temple and I'll build it again in three days. I'll raise it again in three days. Here's that misunderstanding. They thought he was talking about the temple. Bricks and mortar, stones. They, that's what he, and boy, that would be a sign. You tear down the temple and he could put it back in three days. That would be a sign, but that's not the sign he was talking about. You destroy this temple. He's talking about his body. You destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. Now, remember, this is early days. This is early in Jesus' ministry. The cross didn't surprise Jesus. He's, he's foretelling it at the beginning of his ministry. He's going to die on the cross. He's going to be buried and he's going to be raised again. And folks, his resurrection is the sign of signs. It's the ultimate sign. That's what, John, uh, that's what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ be not raised, we have all men most to be pitied. If we don't serve a risen Christ, we have no Christ. And and you're still in your sins. Your faith is in vain. Preaching is a waste of time. We're all doomed. I mean, it's over. (laughs) Turn out the lights and lock the doors. That means we're done. No, the resurrection is the ultimate sign. He is who he said he is. He's the son of God. He died on the cross. He's the lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. He is the Messiah. We serve a risen savior. So Jesus causes a scene and he makes a prediction. Two signs. There are a lot of things that Jesus did, (laughs) but these things are written so that you might believe he is the Christ, the son of God. Now, what's the significance of this event, this passage? Why would John include this? Several things going on here. One, we have revelation. It is a revelation of Jesus Christ, the son of God as Messiah. Again, John 20, 31, these things are written so that you might believe. So it's a demonstration of his messianic authority. It's a revelation of his messianic identity. He is the son of God. He is the Messiah. Secondly, there is a restoration, a restoration, albeit a temporary restoration. But notice that Jesus is is restoring two things. One, he's restoring the temple to its intended purpose. The purpose of the temple is to glorify God. Why even have a temple to glorify God? We're going to come and we're going to worship God. and We're going to adore God. and We're going to glorify God. We're going to praise God. The whole point of the temple was to glorify God. And Gary Burge points out the use of the temple was worship, prayer, instruction, and pious sacrifice. And, you know, that carries over today. That's the same way we use the church. Now, we don't have a temple. You are the temple. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is in you. So you are the temple of the church, the people. You are the temple. But we come together. In the church building to worship, we gather together to worship. We gather together to give. We gather together to pray. We gather together to teach and be taught. Same purposes, same ideas. Well, Jesus is restoring the purpose of the temple. It's not just a cash cow. It's not for making business. It's not a bazaar, an emporium. It's a house of prayer. It's a place of worship. Secondly, he is restoring the the place for the Gentiles, the court of Gentiles. God has always held out an open door to anyone who would come to him on his terms. God's covenant relationship with Israel was to be a blessing to all the nations. It wasn't just God and Israel. But God's relationship with Israel was supposed to be a blessing to all the nations. Israel got it wrong, though, and they messed it all up. The temple in Jerusalem was... They held an open door to the Gentile, to the foreigner. In fact, let me show you. Hang on to John 2. Go to Isaiah 56. Listen to what, I got, to what God says. And Isaiah 56 and verse 6. Also the foreigners, foreigners, non-Jews, Gentiles, the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even those, these foreigners... I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, for all the peoples. So anybody who would come to God on God's terms would be received by God. And there was a place in the temple for them, the court of Gentiles. By the way, in the synoptics, when Matthew, Mark, and Luke describe Jesus cleansing the temple, Jesus quotes this verse. My house should be called a house of prayer for all the nations, and you've turned it into a dinner a, 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 a den of thieves, a robber's den. Well, Jesus is restoring the place for the Gentiles. Thirdly, there's resurrection in view. We have resurrection in this passage. Destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll raise it up. Verse 21, he was speaking of the temple of his body. We have resurrection. Thirdly, or fourthly, there's remembrance Here's a significance of this passage. There's a remembrance. Look in verse 22. So when he was raised from the dead, later on, after the fact, after the death, burial, crucifixion and and resurrection, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Jesus will tell his disciples in John 14, The helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he'll teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. So here's a fulfillment of of that promise. So after the resurrection, the Holy Spirit reminded, brought to remembrance the disciples. Hey, you remember when he... And he said, that's what that meant. That's what he was talking about. So there's remembrance. And then there's also replacement. Ultimately, Jesus replaces the temple. The writer of Hebrews makes, a, makes, a, makes hay with that one as well. In Mark 13, Jesus and the disciples come to Jerusalem, and, and the disciples... Uh, They're just wowed by the temple. I mean, it is a majesty. It is, it's fantastic. And and they just remark on it. You just can't help it. Oh, Jesus, isn't this beautiful? Isn't this magnificent? Wow. And Jesus said, boys, I want to tell you something. Days are going to come when there won't be one stone left on another. The days are numbered. This place is going down. He, foreco- he foretold, he predicted the destruction of the temple. And that's what happened in 70 AD. The Romans absolutely destroyed it. They leveled it. Jesus replaces the temple. In John 4, we get a preview of that. He, he talks to the woman at the well and he says, the hour is coming. Well, actually, it's already here. When it's not going to be about worshiping God on this mountain or in Jerusalem. But they that worship him will worship him in spirit and in truth. It's not about a place or a building a geographical location But we worship Him in spirit and in truth. Um, Kostenberger, again, New Testament guy, he points out John is writing this gospel after the destruction of, of the temple. This is after 70 AD. And so he says this, what John is suggesting here is that anyone who was mourning the loss of the temple as a place of worship need no longer mourn. They could and should worship the risen Jesus instead. And in a very real sense, Jesus is the temple, not a building but the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Why do you go to a temple? Because that's where God is. Well, that's Jesus. <laughs> you've seen the Son, you've seen the Father. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So we worship we worship a risen Savior. Well, what does this have to do with us? That's a fascinating event, a lot of stuff going on there. Well, how does this apply to you and to me? Oh, here comes the sting now, the sting of application. I've got two... Provocative questions to put to you, and you just take them home and deal with them. But they sting a little bit. If you take it seriously, there's a sting. Here's the first question. Am I zealous for the house of God? Zeal for thy house consumes me. Why would Jesus do this? Call such a scene. Zeal for the Father's house. Do I have a zeal for the house of God, for corporate worship, for the church, for the church's mission, for the church's ministry? Do I have a zeal for the house of God and things of God? Or is the house of God and all that, is that just kind of, eh, it's on the edge. It's kind of, it's in my life. I mean, after all, here you are in church, and I'm glad you're here. Uh, But uh, I, I show up, but you know what? When I get busy, that's the first thing that I can afford to let go and i can't really be involved in ministry you know i'd love to be involved and i'd love to serve but i got a lot going on in my life and i just don't i just i just can't afford the time right now and well that says you, you don't have the zeal that this is peripheral it's marginal it's expendable or same thing financially i mean do you give god your first and the best are you zealous for the for the ministry of god or is it well if i can afford it you know times are tight and that's the first thing i can afford to cut and here we go am i zealous For the house of God and things of God. Corporate worship. You know, last year during COVID, we went 13 weeks where we could not have corporate worship. Who could have imagined? So for 13 weeks, we had pajama church (laughs) and all the rest. But you know what COVID taught us? If it didn't teach us anything else, it taught us this. God's people are supposed to be together. And isolation is not good. And it wasn't good for you. It wasn't good for me. It's not good for the church. God's people are meant to be together. We worship together. We need the fellowship of the saints. COVID taught us that. We need the body of Christ. We need that koinonia and corporate worship. A long time ago, 20, 25 years ago, maybe longer than that, I heard a statement. (laughs) We'll say it's 25 years ago. 25 years ago, somebody said, once upon a time... The average Sunday school teacher missed two Sundays a year. You know, summer vacation and Christmas. You got to go see your mom at Christmas. So, summer vacation and Christmas. The average Sunday school teacher missed two Sundays a year once upon a time. But 20, 25, 30 years ago, the average Sunday school teacher missed 13 weeks a year. 13 Sundays. Now, that's not the average church person. The teachers, the teachers who said, I'm in, I'm going to show up and I'm going to prepare and I want to invest and I want to, to teach the truth of God's word to God's people. And they miss 13 Sundays a year on average. Isn't that remarkable? Again, that's, that's our culture. It's where we are. But, hmm, am I zealous for the house of God and for the things of God? Here's another question. It stings. What if Jesus came to church today? What if Jesus came to church today? He went to Jerusalem. It's Passover. It's what he did. He went to Jerusalem, went to the temple. Here's what he found, and here's what he did and what he had to say about it. What if he came to church today? Now, worship is still big business today. There's big worship. (laughs) It's still going on. And you look at some of these TV preachers and their multi-million dollar ministry empires. And folks, most of those, especially the prosperity guys, they are false teachers and they preach a false gospel and God have mercy on them. They're going going to meet the Lord one day. But false teachers aside, worship's still big business, even among evangelicals. In fact, they call it Big Eva. (laughs) There's big worship, big pharma, Big Eva. There's a whole evangelical industry. You have evangelical publishing, evangelical authors, evangelical megastars and megachurches. And I mean, there's a lot of money to be made in evangelical worship and all the rest. The music ministry uh, industry, it's all out there. But let's bring it down to the local church. What if Jesus came to church? What would he say? What would he find? What would he say? I got a few things in mind. I think he might have something to say. <laughs> he might want to speak to One would be worshiptainment, where we have turned the worship of the living God into entertainment. And I'm not talking about music style. You can turn hymns into entertainment. You can turn southern gospel into into entertainment. You can turn contemporary praise and worship into entertainment. It has nothing to do with the style of the music. It has everything to do with the mindset of worship leaders and worshipers. Are we putting on a show for people to watch and enjoy? Or are we offering something to God? A sacrifice of praise. Who's it for? What's the motive behind it? The the attitude, the spirit and the truth. Entertainment. The truth is, the church with the best show wins. And the church that puts on the best performance, the best music, the best quality, the loudest music, the coolest lighting, the laser lights, and the smoke machines, and all the rest, they just win. They just win. They're going to be the biggest and the brightest and the coolest because they're just putting on the best show. And we've really gone from sublime to ridiculous. And I've seen articles or videos of churches where the preacher preaches from a trampoline. He's up here boing, 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 preaching, doing something on trampolines. Or where they've actually got a roller coaster on the stage. Or circus animals. And literally turn the worship of God into a circus. I wonder if, if Jesus might have something to say about that. Turning worship into entertainment. Here's something else I think Jesus might speak to. Our consumerism. And we've talked about this ad nauseum in other settings. But consumers, we might as well admit we're consumers, right? We just are, own it. We are, we're consumers. We're natural bread consumers. We live in a consumer society, consumer culture. We are highly sophisticated consumers. Our problem is we bring that consumption mindset to church. And we come not to worship and serve and give, but to consume. And we consume the goods and products and services of the church. In fact, we'll pick a church. Based on consumption. What does your church have to offer? What do, you, what do y'all have? Now that church down there, they've got this and that. Do y'all have this and that? Well, they don't have this, but you do have that. And, it was, and so we, we, we go shopping. We call it church shopping, don't we? We go shopping for a church. And the pressure is on the church then to cater to the preferences of the consumer. I mean the church person. <laughs> the consumer. We want customers, right? We need customers. And so we need to market ourselves... to the the customers out there according to their preferences. And we need a brand and we need market recognition and all that stuff, all that marketing terminology. Folks, that is the vernacular of the church today. We need brand recognition, market share and marketing and preferences and and all the rest. No, you don't pick a church based on consumption and preferences. You, You pick a church on where can I serve? What can I do? How can I use my gifts? I think Jesus might have, to say, have something to say about our consumption. Rather than being the beautiful bride of Christ in all its simplicity, and the body of Christ in its, in its divine ingenuity, and we've just turned it into, into a place of marketing. I think Jesus might also have something to say about corruption. If he came to church today, he might have something to say about corruption, especially corrupt preachers and corrupt pastors, corrupt church leaders and corrupt churches. But especially corrupt pastors. Pastors who want so desperately to be hip and cool and relevant and popular and well-liked that they surrender the word of God, the ministry of God, the preaching of God, and the people of God to a culture. And they've been corrupted by the culture. And churches are corrupted by the culture. And they and their churches have adopted cultural norms, cultural ideologies, cultural values, cultural mores, and they've surrendered the things of God to a culture. Corrupted, Or corrupted by money, where it's all all about the money and get more money, more money, more money. Or church leaders can be all about the money and money, money, and turn the house of God into into a cash cow. Or corrupted by image and prestige, wanting to be viewed a certain way. Wanting to have denominational power, denominational influence, and look at me and how important I am. Or proximity to political power, and I'm an important person in the community because I'm the mayor's pastor or whatever it is political power, or wanting to be viewed as an entrepreneur. I've known church planters who call themselves entrepreneurs. I'm a church planter. I've got an entrepreneurial spirit. In fact, they call themselves pastorpreneurs. I'm a pastorpreneur because I want to go out and start my own business. I mean, church and grow it up and see what I can do. Corruption. I think Jesus might have something to say about corruption. Well, am careful. The temptation is to think, Jesus thinks just like I think. And he likes the same things I like, and he dislikes the very same things I dislike. It's amazing. He thinks just like I do. You know, God said back in Psalms, you thought I was just like you? Wrong. I'm not just like you. You thought I was just like you. But these are some pretty stinging questions. If Jesus showed up, what would he say? What would he say about our worship. Is it in spirit and in truth? Is it for the Lord? Is it something you're giving or something you're watching? What would he say about our ministry and our service? Are you zealous for the house of God, the things of God, serving God, making disciples? Are you zealous? I mean, what would he say about our desire and our efforts to bring outsiders into his house and into his family? What would he say? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus Christ, your son, our savior. We thank you for the apostle John, that you would inspire him to to write these things down, to record for us this event in the life and ministry of Christ. Lord, I pray now that you would just kind of seal this message to our hearts and Lord, bring conviction where conviction is called for and a challenge where we need to be challenged or comfort when we need to be comforted and encouraged. Lord, just, just drive this message home where it needs to land. Lord, I pray for the person who's never been saved. Help them to see they need Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Bring them to the cross even now. Take charge of this time of decision. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.